Now, this past weekend, tens of thousands of people in France again took to the streets. It's actually 19 straight weeks of anti-government protests we've seen there. For our on-the-scene segment today, we connect to Paris for an update and an insight into where the Yellow Vest movement, as it's known, currently stands. So joining us on the line, Reuters Bureau Chief in Paris, Luke Baker. Thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's dragging on. It's, um, in some respects, in that way, reminiscent of our own protest movement that we've seen uh, here that obviously led to a government change. But but on the other hand, uh, there, there has been this taint of violence. And I don't know, have the numbers been gathering momentum or what's the status at the moment? Well, the, the numbers started out relatively strong. Uh, 19 weeks ago, when it began back in November, around 300,000 people came out on the streets across France, in Paris mainly, but across France. Since then, those numbers have fluctuated every week. Sometimes it's been fewer than 30,000. Last weekend, um, uh, well, two weekends ago, it was about 40,000, and it was another uh, a weekend of quite intense violence. What we've seen is... Um, among the Yellow Vests, there have been a group that they're called in French casseurs, which means basically, you know, red people who are really intent on causing uh, uh, violence and, and disruption. And they've infiltrated, in some cases, the protests by the Yellow Vest movement. Uh, they've attacked shops, they've looted, they've clashed with police very violently. That's also included some Yellow Vest protesters themselves. So that we've seen a kind of... Um, not, an, not an increase in numbers, actually a decrease in numbers, but sometimes an increase in violence and an increase in militancy as the weeks have gone on. I think the general feeling, however, is that this is not something certainly that's going to bring down the government. Uh, the government has provided some concessions to the movement, which originally began as a protest against fuel taxes. But I cannot see Macron... Um, uh, uh, losing any sort of sense of his own power over this movement. However, it's not going away, and they don't quite know how to handle it going forwards. Right. I mean, so a big, well, series of distinctions between France and where South Korea was 2016 to 2017, the millions that were involved every week here, the uh, peaceful nature of it as well. But there was also a clear goal. What... what has Emmanuel Macron done to deserve 19 weeks of fairly violent protest? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a question that cuts right to the very heart of the issue. I mean, Macron, in a way, swept to power in 2017 as a 39-year-old, fresh face, who was going to shake up politics. He formed his own movement. He wasn't from the traditional parties in France. And he was going to sort of deliver profound change to, to France and its economy. Um, he made some early progress with some quite fundamental reforms on labor policies designed to reinvigorate the economy. But in doing that, he also took some steps that have been perceived as basically what he's been labeled as the president of the rich. He cut um, some taxes that were uh, wealth taxes that were imposed by his predecessor that were very much seen as, as, as a sop to the wealthiest in France. And at the same time, he developed a sort of a reputation perhaps because he'd had a previous career as a banker, perhaps because he's young and very sort of quick-spoken, quick-witted. He answers back to people in a very sort of um, uh, sometimes arrogant way it's perceived to be. And that, that certainly raised tensions within the broader populace, if you like. I think certainly working-class French people 
outside the cities in rural areas felt they weren't being listened to. They were being abandoned. And they organized this protest movement that sort of took place organically and, and gained momentum and became what we now know as the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vests. Um, so they, they, they wanted initially just uh, Macron to change policy on a new tax on diesel fuel. And he did change that policy, he dropped the, the, the tax increase. But the movement changed into something that was much more general against Macron, everything he stands for, his perceived support for big business, his tax cuts for the wealthy. They now want him to change policies, uh, to do more for rural areas, to stop immigration. And so it's broadened into a very, very wide, amorphous movement that doesn't really have a political focus, but has a lot of anger underneath it. Would you sense if there was a snap election right now that, that his position would be under threat? I really don't think so. When you look at the... It's true that in the polls, I think the bottom that his polling touched was around 27, 28%. It's risen now, I think, to around 34, 35%. Uh, you know, it is, it was shortly after he took office, it was above 60%. It's not uncommon for a French president to, to see that level of decline in his support over the first 18 months or two years in office. But if you look at it in another way, um, he has an absolute majority in Parliament. Um, ahead of the European elections, those are the elections to the European Parliament, they'll take place in May, May 23rd to 26th. And they will be the first elections uh, since Macron took power. They will effectively be a referendum uh, in France on Macron's performance. And actually, Macron, with his allies, is leading narrowly in those polls. Um, over the far right party, and I think if you had a if you had an election, uh, a two way horse race again, which is you know French elections are different, but if you have a two way horse race, I think Macron would probably still just win. But there is an important point to make. Macron came to office having def- very um, significantly defeated uh, Marine Le Pen from the far right party, but he he won that in a two-way horse race. In the first round of, his, of the election, he won less than 25% of the vote. And that's really his core, is around 25% of the vote, not much more than that. His um, supporters, what's left of it, that core support, w- will want to see, I'm sure, order restored. I'm looking, for example, at, at images from the last few hours that have emerged um, in other places um, also on the BBC, and, and the headline is Fairground Workers Riot in French City of Le Mans. Looks like a, a small battleground uh, with mm. clashes at a protest by fairground workers who are demanding the right to set up stall in the town centre. It seems a fairly minor issue in the grand scheme of things, but still it, it adds up to a picture of a country that doesn't seem to be particularly stable anywhere. Well, there's a few things to say, really. I think France is one of those countries that many, it's the most visited country in the world. So, you know, lots of people have been to France. Lots of people have the desire to come to France. And I think, therefore, when France is mentioned in the news, it tends to draw uh, uh, attention. Uh, People immediately recognize the country and what it's about. So I do think there is a tendency sometimes, um, certainly over the course of these Gilets Jaunes, protests where people are like, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on in that country? Mm. Uh, it's, it's collapsing. I, France is not collapsing. Paris does not feel like a war zone. It is a, a, a major disruption to commerce and to, to regular people, citizens in cities like Paris and other major cities uh, every weekend. The, the, the demonstrations that have been, the protests and the clashes that went on today in a, in a city, a town called Le Mans, are unrelated, although they are similar. It's a social protest by uh, fairground workers. There are big 
um, community of traveling fairground workers in France in the 30 or 40,000 who, who move around the country uh, putting on fairs and, 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 and events like that. They were, they were moved out of the center of the city and that led to clashes. There, I think the grievances are similar, if distinct, from the, the yellow vest. Mm. And you're right. It does tend to create this impression that France is going up in flames. It let, uh, having said what I said, let me be clear. France is a country that enjoys protest. Um, it's a country where if you ask um, ordinary citizens about people's right to protest, they will always support people's right to go out on the streets and demonstrate. It's a kind of part of part of the um, uh, of, of the DNA of the, of the French. Um, but And I think there is, at this point, a, a lot of social anger, partly because of the changes that Macron is trying to introduce, and partly because if you look across the landscape in Europe generally, there is a lot of polarization of political opinion on the far left and the far right against the middle ground, and that's what Macron represents. But I wouldn't say that France is about to go off a cliff edge or about to collapse. It feels still that it, 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 its, its focus is there. And let's be also very clear if there are 30,000 Yellow Vest protesters out on the weekend, that is extremely small. France is a country that's used to having protests of 300,000, 500,000, even a million. One of the stories that came from AFP, though, is a little jarring and it perhaps suggests that Emmanuel Macron is not learning fast enough. Uh, the inexperience that you referred to before, perhaps showing he accused or he was seen as accusing one of the Yellow Vest protesters of not demonstrating uh, the wisdom of her years, a 73-year-old woman suffering a fractured skull on Saturday after uh, riot police charged against anti-government demonstrators in Nice. And um, and Macron wished her a speedy recovery, but he also suggested that um, perhaps she shouldn't have put herself in a position like that in a demonstration mm. if she's fragile. It doesn't come across wonderfully well, does it? No, well, this is partly what I was referring to. Macron has this kind of um, off-the-cuff, um, often you know, arrogant phrasing and way of speaking uh, he's certainly a very sort of clever, self-assured person, but he often lacks um, a common touch. And his language, his choice of words, is often um, quite divisive. It's been, it's you know, there's been a consistent pattern of that throughout his time in office. And in referring to this elderly woman, he did. He said, "Perhaps she'll learn some wisdom," which was seen as a very patronizing thing for a 41-year-old to say to a 73-year-old. I think, again, there is some truth in the fact that Macron is divisive in that regard, that he's, his character is not always appealing to everyone. And he recognizes, I think, he's gone on TV, he's made a couple of national addresses where he said, you know, I misjudged, I got things wrong, and he sort of apologized. But I think if there's something we can draw from that, it's that he, he's had to do it more than once. He hasn't easily learned the lesson. Um, and he hasn't, uh, he hasn't, doesn't always have the right measure um, in the way that he, that he addresses the uh, uh, people, particularly if they don't come from the same, same social uh, classes as him. Mm. But there's another point to make. I think the police, the security forces in France have in the past, I'm going back to the 80s and 90s, were often seen as quite brutal. They cracked down on, on, on dissent and protest very aggressively. During the Gilets Jaunes protests, largely speaking, there's been an, a, a tendency to try to hold back, to not be so aggressive. However, there have also been episodes where there's been, a, a, I referred to them earlier, the casseurs, the very violent core of, of protesters at the heart of some of these demonstrations, and there have been clashes. 
police have fired rubber-type bullets or rubber balls at them. There have been some, some deaths unrelated to direct clashes. And so that's given the impression as well, I think, that of, of a very violent level of conflict between the security services and the population, which is probably exaggerates the overall atmosphere, but certainly in the close confines of Paris does look like a very, a very brutal, violent kind of conflict. Just briefly finishing, Mr. Baker, looking at your own Twitter account, it, it reads a bit like a tale of two cities. Well, actually, two cities, London and Paris, featured in uh, that famous novel by uh, Charles Dickens, but also in the very modern era, a city changing beyond recognition, in your words, uh, speaking of London, but also Paris. You retweeted the Telegraph columnist Alison Pearson, who said that Paris had uh, been a city changed beyond recognition. I mean, is that a little bit of hyperbole there? And how important are the changes going on in both places right now? Well, exactly. I mean, it was absolutely a bit of hyperbole, and that I was fighting tongue. I was trying to be tongue in cheek in my response. I mean, Alison Pearson uh, referred to a friend having a friend of hers having come back from Paris and describing it as a changed city. I think anyone, particularly anyone living in Paris, and certainly foreign correspondents who, who make a living covering the country, would never say that Paris feels like a changed place. It very much goes about business as usual. And by the same, same token, I think anyone taking the Eurostar from Paris, you know, the two hours it takes to get to London just across the channel, you go to London, and it would feel very much like a normal London, even though when you watch the television pictures and you read about Brexit and you hear about Brexit, you, you always feel that Britain's about to go off a cliff edge, the economy's going to collapse, people are divided, you know, there's incredible tensions. So my point is really that we do have a tendency to see through headlines. We think things are much worse often than the reality on the ground. It's not to say they're not dramatic. It's not to say they're not somehow worrisome. But we shouldn't think that somehow the country, whether it's or, or the city, whether it's Paris or London, is about to sort of um, collapse in on itself or change forever for the worse. Right. Well, if they can survive the last few thousand years, I'm sure they can get through this next year's challenges or so. Luke Baker, right. Reuters Bureau Chief in Paris, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Good evening. And earlier in the show, we were talking about the cost of living in Seoul. We've got this message from 0711. Groceries are not the biggest burden in Korea, but rather housing tax and quasi-tax. Yes, I'm sure you're right. Uh, depends on what you want to do, but uh, the measure we heard earlier was that filling your shopping basket in Seoul is one of the most expensive cities in the world. So I think we have to agree that's more subjective than objective. And frankly, housing is not exactly cheap in New York either. Um, we'll be back tomorrow from 7.05. Join us then. Inside Korea and your latest news headlines next.